Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Peace is breaking out in Colombia. On June 27th, FARC rebels turned over the last of their weapons to the United Nations in a ceremony attended by both the leader of the FARC and President Juan Manuel Santos. Thus officially marked the end of an over 50-year civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of people and displaced millions more. So how did we get to this point, and what are some of the big challenges that lay ahead for Colombia as peace takes hold? I put these questions and more to Kyle Johnson of the International Crisis Group. I reached him in Colombia a couple weeks after the laying of arms ceremony, which he attended, and we have a great discussion about the history of Colombia, the history of this conflict, and how a militant group will now become part of a political opposition. Before we begin, I do want to give a quick update about a careers and international affairs panel that I'm hosting that you've asked for, actually. You know, I know a lot of listeners of this show, not not all, but a good chunk of you are younger professionals in foreign policy or students and have questions and ask me questions all the time about how to forge the career path that's right for you in international affairs. So I have gathered two people to answer your questions. They're Paul Stronsky and Alana Sheikh. These two have had varied careers in international affairs, and they will be on hand to answer your questions in a conference call that I will be hosting at 12 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, July 26. I'm most likely going to use a VOIP program to record and host this call, so you'll have to be at a desktop in order for it to work. I will send out those details later. If you cannot make this time but still want to pose a question to the panelists, simply send me your question in an email and I will pose them, pose it to them on your behalf. You can find my email using the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Looking forward to seeing many of you there, and I will send an email update as we get closer to the time with more details. All right. Now, here is Kyle Johnson of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I mean, it was a historic moment, without a doubt. This is a 53-year-old um, armed conflict, so the fact that uh, the main guerrilla group has handed over their guns was quite historic. Yet at the same time, it was somewhat indicative of the challenges ahead. The, the cantonment where the ceremony took place is 
the cantonment that is least developed in terms of the agreed upon infrastructure. So places for firefighters to sleep, um, health infrastructure. And to get there is indicative in the sense that um, it's two to three hours out, outside of this small town up a dirt road, uh, basically towards the, what we would accurately call the middle of nowhere. So on this one hand, you had a very indicative historic ceremony going on, but somewhat anticlimactic at the same time. People in Bogota weren't really interested in it. Really? Some arms, arms caches. Yeah, in, in Bogota it was. I mean, it was like huge international huge. news that, you know, those photos from that stage were, were blasted all over the world. But people in oh, yeah, Bogota was, itself could, were, could, couldn't really be bothered? Uh, a good chunk of the population, yeah, probably, I don't know if it's the majority, but probably around half or if not more of the population couldn't really. It wasn't the big, um, it was on news, it was on TV, but, um, you know, they because the conflict has less and less affected Bogota, I mean, really, historically, it really almost never affected Bogota, save some um, specific FARC attacks around 15 years ago or so. Um, the interest or the focus for people in Bogota has not been on the conflict. It's, it's kind of been their day-to-day life is, is quite distant from the conflict. And so when these good kind of, when these good, great news things happen, I mean, we have the kind of the official end of the, uh, FARC, um, the military aspect of the conflict with the guerrilla group, the people, I mean, it's on the news and they see it. Some people are skeptical, um, of the process to begin with. And others, it just doesn't affect their day-to-day life. Hmm. So it kind of, it's on the news, but it's not, um, it's not something life-changing. Or a lot of people don't feel like it's life-changing. They haven't felt the conflict in a long time. So, but I have to imagine um, for like you personally, it was probably a very big deal having sort of studied this, oh, this yeah. conflict, having you know <laughs> helped work towards this moment for such a long time. That's why I figured, like, to ask you to if you were there personally, I sort of figured you probably would be. Yeah. Um, there was not a lot of, uh, let's say, a whole lot of international presence there. But, yeah, um, we were able to, um, here at Crisis Group, we were able to, because we had some other meetings set up, actually, in the camp that just happened to be on the same day. Um, we made sure we made it to the ceremony. Um, yeah, and it's one of those it's one of those moments where it's kind of like, so I've been you know, working on Colombia for over 10 years now, and it's kind of, okay, everything is everything is different. Um, it's, it's one of those kind of points of no return, um, symbolic points of no return. I mean, technically it could, so it could go back to war, but I, it's extremely unlikely. Um, yeah, it's just a complete change of, you know, now what it would be like to go to the field and, you know, not have to worry about the FARC or not have to contact the FARC or ask some permission for things, you know, just a whole different, um, and I think it's going to be one of those points when we look back at, you know, Colombia's history in the, from in the future, decades from now, this will be one of those key points. Um, we always, we still talk about the civil war that Colombia had between 1948 and 1958 and the demobilization of guerrillas in that process and, and its connection to the FARC. So, I, you know, I think 50 years from now, this is going to be one of those moments that, that uh, people studying Colombia will be like, yeah, that's where... Um, it's going to be a key moment, um, hopefully for the better. Um, so I want to uh, go back and, and talk about the history and, and how we got to this moment. But before that, I, I wanted to focus on something you mentioned earlier, which is this contentment, contentment site. Um, mm. And this is part of, of the peace deal, right? So the, the ceremony that you're referring to is one in which the final arms were turned over. Uh, but part of the peace deal exactly. also includes uh, FARC guerrillas 
being reintegrated into society, and that includes and involves them staying at these kind of containment sites. Can you describe like what exactly that is? Because this is, I should say, a process that I know is being overseen and aided by the United Nations, and I know the UN has done this like, yeah. around the world to help the demobilization, help end conflicts elsewhere. Uh, but it's it's something kind of interesting to discuss and, and describe. So, can you tell me what is this site? What what is this camp look like? So in, in throughout Colombia, there are, there are 26 different, um, different camps. Um, it, I mean, the, the language differs of, you know, camps, cantonment. It's, it's basically the idea, not only in Colombia, but around the world is you get the troops who you're looking, who will be handing over their weapons or who will be demobilizing in other cases. Um, you try to get them in very specific geographic points. So they concentrate all their fighters in a very specific area. The idea is that you maintain them in this area, this camp, in, in the case of, in many cases, in the far case, basically, um, for a certain period of time, while um, with protection, obviously, from the other forces they've been fighting. Um, and there, they can they can hand over their weapons, they can demobilize, they can start receiving services, um, and eventually, once they leave the camp, the idea is they start their longer-term reintegration process into society. Mm-hmm. So in Colombia, you have 26 of these points, um, these camps throughout the country. And there they've built some fairly permanent uh, infrastructure, actually, for the housing of FARC members. Um, some of the more temporary infrastructures for people, for example, working with the UN mission, who are overseeing, uh, overseeing the process with the government and the FARC. Um, but they built fairly permanent infrastructure of, of, of housing, basically, and reception areas out in these little villages in the middle of nowhere. So the idea was to put them in places where the FARC would be safe, and since the FARC has been operating in the periphery, these zones are also in the periphery. Um, also, the government didn't want them too close to the civilian population. So in these villages, they rented a piece of land and built these, essentially, in some cases, mini towns for anywhere between 1, 200, up to 500, almost 600 FARC members, where they go, um, and they basically live, and the idea is they start receiving um, educational, um, like education courses. They've done cooking courses and IT courses in some of these places. Um, they've just finished a census of the FARC fighters to know, okay, who are we? You know, who do we have to reintegrate? Um, what's their education level? What kind of health problems do they have? Do they have family? What do they kind of want to do in the future? And so that whole process is beginning now while they're in these camps where. The one in Meseta, is, like I said, is extremely underdeveloped. So they still live in basically, um, they put up four basically bamboo or four wooden posts and put some thick plastic around it and, and improvise a roof. And that's where the FARC fighters are sleeping. Um, in other places, they're much more advanced. So you actually have, you know, wooden housing um, that's up and running. But it's interesting because, I mean, they have, they have electricity. They have internet, actually. They have no cell phone service doesn't exist. It's in these parts of the country, they're way too out in the middle of nowhere. But they have internet. Um, there they have good bathrooms. They're supposed to have good health services, including services in case they need to be um, for emergency cases. And so they've been there since basically between um, end of January, beginning of February until now. They will continue to be there for the next couple months. And the FARC plan is once these camps are dismantled in terms of um, once it's no longer operating for the weapons handover, like once that whole process is done, the FARC will kind of stay there to to reintegrate. And so they'll be doing... How, how long do they expect that um, to take? Living like, in a camp. How, how long do you think the people actually live in these containment sites? It's going to be... Uh, that is still up in the air. We know that they'll be there at least for another two months. 
um, another two or three months or between August and September, they'll be there. Mm-hmm. And then the cantonment will legally be changed to a different figure and, and a whole kind of bureaucratic process. From there, it's, it's going to be quite difficult to know how long they'll be there because one, this reintegration process, which has different facets to it, is still somewhat underdeveloped. Um, the FARC were kind of in charge of it. Um, you can, since in the peace agreement, it said that the reintegration process will be done according to their interests. But the FARC know about war and not about reintegration. Um, and so their their ability to design their own program beyond some very abstract ideas of what they want was limited. So only recently, only about six weeks ago, the Colombian government said, OK, no, we're going to we're going to be in charge of this and work with the FARC instead of mm-hmm. um, instead of kind of the other way around, uh, letting the FARC try to run their own thing. Well, that's interesting. I mean, take, yeah. it, it, it'll take years because it's, it's um, one once you get, I mean, reintegration in Colombia is a big thing. Colombia has an individual reintegration program. So if someone is a fighter from the FARC or the, or other guerrilla groups in Colombia beforehand, they could desert, hand themselves over to the government and start an individual, an individual process. And that process um, right now is, has a maximum of six and a half years for a fighter to be reintegrated. Um, and now they have 10,000 fighters, at least who will be doing this at the same time. Um, and limited resources. But if the FARC want to reintegrate where these, these camps are, these camps are where there's the, the road infrastructure is, is, is non-existent sometimes. You have to go by river. Or it's, it's something that, you know, to go to between 10 to 15 miles will take you three to four hours on a mm-hmm. good day. Um, and if it rains, because, you know, Colombia having a, a very tropical climate in the rainy season, there are some roads you can't actually even take. Um, so if you're trying to get products out or if you're trying to do economic reintegration or, or any kind of work there, um, they're not close to markets. And and the cost of getting things out will make it um, uncompetitive with other products who may be closer to markets. So these are these are some some challenges you, you see in, in the future, I imagine. But it's it's interesting just to see the nuts and bolts of how a peace process like that works, how a group just kind of turns over its arms and, and decides mm-hmm. to stop the, the armed struggle. And that was the, the, the key moment on that, in that, uh, final arms turnover was, I think you wrote in, in, in one of your analysis, this is like the moment in which, you know, the armed struggle that lasted 50 years has formally ended. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the FARC still have, um, hundreds of, of weapons caches out in the countryside, which, um, their location is being handed over to the UN. They're being distracted and uh, extracted and destroyed. Um, but really, for us, this was the, this was the telling moment um, because for FARC guerrillas, life depends on your gun. Um, if you're a FARC fighter in the jungle or in the mountains or wherever you've been located, you don't go anywhere without your gun. Um, if you wake up in the middle of the night and have to go, your gun is always there. It kind of becomes a second appendage. Um, and people's whole existence, um, kind of depends on that. So the fact that now they're getting rid of these guns and handing them over, uh, is kind of a doubling down on the peace process. There's a lot of political uncertainty right now around the peace agreement, um, which I think a lot of other armed groups, um, would make the decision of kind of delaying the handing over of their weapons, um, kind of, kind of take a couple steps back until there's a bit more political certainty about, um, about the about their peace agreement. But the FARC have kind of doubled down on this, on this project of 
we're going to uh, stop our armed struggle and our political platform will be the implementation of the peace agreement, which mm -hmm. is given the conditions. And like I say, comparing to other armed groups, um, it's actually kind of quite a positive experience for Colombia because um, there's no guarantee that the whole of this peace agreement be implemented or actually you know, a good whole parts of this peace agreement be implemented um, at all. And if you're a guerrilla group who negotiated that, you know, and the FARC say they know that they're what they have to negotiate is their guns. So they have just gotten rid of their negotiating power, essentially. Um, so that I mean, yes, yeah, so that's why this is kind of like so, the, yeah. the, the the no turning back moment for, for the FARC. Exactly. Can, can we um, take a step back and, and describe mm -hmm. how we got to this point? I mean, where and how and under what circumstances did the FARC? Um, movement to the FARC guerrilla to that civil war begin and how has it evolved over the years and how did we get to this point? So give me like 50 years of so, Colombian history in like three <laughs> minutes. Three minutes? All right. Um, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Well, basically the FARC, the FARC guerrillas, as I mentioned earlier, very quickly, there was a civil war between 1948 and 1958 in Colombia when there were two political parties, the liberals and the conservatives. They still exist today, but in Colombia we have a multiplicity of, of parties as well. Um, Part of the liberal side of that civil war included communists, basically. Um, and in 1958, when the war ended, basically the communists kind of said you know, to the peace deal or the peace arrangement, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and what would become the base of the FARC went out into these little villages, again, in the middle of nowhere and kind of set up shop. Um, and they, they maintained their weapons. They, they kept their arms. And they said, OK, we're going to create our little communist um, oases in southwest Colombia, in the southern part of Colombia. Um, and there were only a few, five, six or seven. Um, and they just kind of kind of farming there and working there and, and just maintained kind of the fighters from the previous civil war, but in kind of trying to set up an autonomous context with no pretensions of taking over the government or, or fighting the civil war, but just kind of trying to build their own thing based on their ideology. And the army decides, um, the army decides in uh, 1964 that this is, or well, the government, parts of the government um, decide in 1964 that this is unacceptable, calling them independent republics in the middle of Colombia, and they attack the FARC, or they attack these little these hamlets that these guerrillas had set up. Um, and a, as a, after that attack. Um, a group comes out and says, okay, we're, we're going to be the, the Southern block and we're going to fight for land reform. Um, eventually some more attacks happen in 1966. They officially call themselves the FARC and they want a, a revolution. Um, and from there they begin to expand to different areas. They had been displaced by violence. Um, they were, you know, not many guerrilla fighters against a very large army. And so they kind of dispersed and try to set up shop in different parts of the country. And during the 70s and 80s, well, during the 70s, um, they they were still in the periphery. They weren't the main threat for the Colombian state, so they were kind of left to just grow. Um, and they did that starting in the southwest and the south, southeast, um, in, the, in the plains of Colombia. Until the 1980s, um, when they make a decision that they are going to expand nationally, expand towards the areas of production. Um, and, and start building up a guerrilla army to take over the country. And, and at that point, are they using um, cocaine to, to fuel their, their arms and fund their, their operations? That's really when it starts, because one of the things they note at what is called the 7th Conference, 7th uh, FARC Conference um, 
1982 was that they need money for for this. Um, and cocaine and coca production for cocaine um, exportation really began in Colombia in about 1977. It's really when it kind of starts to pick up. In some places, in control, under control of the FARC. And so in some of those places, they allowed, in the late 70s, they allowed the cocaine, the coca trade to flow, um, and they just kind of maintained order, some semblance of order. Um, in other places, they prohibited it, but then eventually gave in and realized this is okay, this is a good way to make money. Um, but it's really after 19, in the early 80s, 1982, really that they they really step up um, and start systematically using the, the coca trade to make money. Um, originally, that's protecting coca crops, uh, charging taxes on traffickers, um, setting up some agreements for traffickers to use their area, uh, areas of control to, um, to traffic drugs. And that, and that happens throughout the 80s. There's a famous place called Tranquilandia, um, which is like the calm land, I guess, is the closest translation we could come to. Um, in the middle of, of, of FARC control area in the south, where basically Pablo Escobar and other drug traffickers were sending out plane after plane of cocaine. Hmm. Um, and so there was kind of this, this and other traffickers working with, with Escobar had agreements with the FARC. And so it be, kind of became this idea, okay, we can make money on this, and this helps us with our general military strategy. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being the case throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s when um, – as a coca, as coca production and cocaine production in Colombia kind of booms, um, the FARC are still very um, involved in that trade, and and some commanders to the point where, um, where they're involved with financial deals to get cocaine on the international market. The FARC never had international traffickers within their ranks. You wouldn't find a, mm-hmm. a plane with cocaine or a boat with cocaine or people. With, with FARC members on it, but they had the deals with the people. In some places, they had deals with people who were doing that. In other places, it was just controlling uh, the lower levels of the market. So so at what point uh, then did the FARC decide that it was time to try to pursue a, a peace process? I mean, I, I know the, the mm-hmm. negotiations that led to this moment uh, in, in late June, you know, were, were many years in the making involved the Pope and, you know, involved a lot of different players and, and involved the Cuban government. But like, how did that initial decision come from the, the FARC leadership to want to pursue this, this peace plan? Exactly. Well, that, that also brings us back to, to the mid eighties because the first time that the FARC tried to negotiate with the government was in the early eighties. Um, in fact, they negotiated. They were able to negotiate a ceasefire in 1984 with the government. In 1985, they created their own political party called the Patriotic Union. And that party, you could be a FARC member or you could be any activist or, or kind of um, any other person if you wanted to join. You could. Um, in the late 80s, that party had a lot of success. Um, Colombia had a you know a problem in the 80s, which it still has now, but it was much worse then, which was that there were. Um, different guerrilla groups operating within the country. You had one, you had the FARC, obviously. You have another one, the ELN, which is still operating today, actually, has its own peace negotiation process with the government going on right now. Um, you had one called the M19. You had one called the EPL. You had one called the PRT. So you had this whole kind of plethora of guerrilla organizations um, that in the late 80s came together to try to negotiate with the government. Um, and three of them were successful. The FARC and ELN were not, in part because that patriotic union party 
um, was systematically assassinated. Its, its members, anywhere from three to 5,000 members were killed between the late 80s and early 90s. And the FARC make a decision, okay, well, we're not going to continue negotiating. In fact, we're going to focus on our military strategy again in the early 90s. Um, in 1998, 1997, um, well, let's say 97, there was a vote in Colombia called the Mandate for Peace in which 10 million Colombians voted that, you know, there had to be a political solution to the, to the armed conflict. In the 90s, paramilitary death squads had also strengthened. And so we're looking at, you know, the high point, the end of the 90s, the high point of FARC military power and almost the high point of these death squads power, which involved, you know, a lot of massacres, mm-hmm. a lot of assassinations. And, 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 and these death squads were, were, were um, government backed, it's, it's assumed, right? There were, they, there's, the it was Colombian kind of a right wing government at the time. I mean, it was, it, I mean, death squads are, are unfortunately quite common in Latin America, but um, these were created somewhat autonomously and still had somewhat, you know, a, I'd say a comparatively high level of autonomy from the government compared to, say, death squads in El Salvador, which were basically, you know, an arm, um, something much closer to the government or in Guatemala or even in Peru. Um, nonetheless, there is, there, um, they ended up getting extreme political power, these death squads. Um, there are numerous cases of people from the army or the military um, for cases of omission or supporting them. Um, it wasn't necessarily a top-down kind of death squad creation, but nonetheless, in a lot of places where they operated, it, this logic of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend um, um, operated quite well. So they didn't really have a lot of pressure from the government at all um, until the early 2000s when the international community started pressuring because of, uh, because of U.S. policy in Colombia, basically. But at, at this point in, in 97, there's this vote. And in 1999, peace negotiations begin in which the Colombian government gave the FARC five municipalities. Often the, the, the comparison is about the size of Switzerland, um, where the FARC controlled absolutely everything. There was no military whatsoever. They took the military and police out and they used those areas to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was the FARC leadership much of the FARC leadership not all of it but the vast majority was convinced that they could win the war and take power like so nationally used, nationally yes huh. they could they could take over Bogota um one of the key commanders at the time had been developing this strategy to take over Bogota and in 96 97 98 it was actually going quite well from a FARC perspective so they were, they were convinced they could win i think they were completely wrong but um they were convinced they could do it nonetheless and so they used these peace negotiations between 99 and 2002 um, to build up their army, to recruit people, to traffic drugs, to traffic arms, to kind of get ready for this final push um, towards Bogota. Um, and because, because of this, basically, the, I mean, the peace agreements don't really may have any advances. Um, there's actually too much public participation. So there's over a thousand forums in which uh, people participated to talk about this 100 point, point agenda. It was all just kind of destined to fail um, Mm -hmm. from the beginning. And so when these peace talks mm -hmm. fall apart because the FARC kidnap um, a senator on a plane flying from Bogota to southwest Colombia, um, the Colombian public basically, the vision of the FARC for the Colombian public of kind of this distrust, this hatred, um, this disdain, let's say, for the FARC increases drastically. And that's where we get uh, President Uribe in 2002, who's 
policy was um, a military offensive against the FARC, push them back, beat them down, um, and, and see if you can defeat them. And he did that. He, he did that for eight years. Um, at one point, uh, the number, the leader of the FARC, who was a guy named Manuel Marulanda, who had been part of that civil war from 1948 to 58, he dies. He dies of a heart attack, but either way, he dies. Um, the FARC number two was killed in a bombing in Ecuador, which created a lot of problems, but he, he dies. Another FARC leader in, um, in their kind of leadership aboard, what they call their secretariat, um, his bodyguard kills him and then tries to get the, the reward money for, for doing so. Um, and so the FARC are hit pretty heavily. Um, the government was never going to fully defeat them, but they're hit pretty heavily. And it's that context that mm. President Santos comes into power starts sending these subtle political messages and starts the secret talks with the FARC um, to try to talk about peace negotiations. And the FARC realized at this point, um, one, they're not going to win the war. Um, they've been hit hard enough that they can't, um, they can't really think that they're going to uh, take over Bogota again. Two, um, one of their, their newest head, their, their number one commander, a man named Alfonso Cano, he lasted three years, three and a half years, before the army killed him. Um, their main military commander was killed as well. Um, so they're seeing their ranks decimated. They're, they're in a fairly weak yeah. position at this point. And exactly. so those subtle overtures from Santos, the new president, who is more of a, a, a left-winger as opposed to Rube or kind of a right-winger, seem kind of attractive, right? It seemed attractive. I mean, it, it, um, at the same time, the FARC also realized that the keeping their organization alive after the higher-ups died, guys like Timuchenko, who was, was the current FARC commander, um, or Ivan Marquez, who was the number two and the lead negotiator in Havana, they realized their organization was not sustainable. This generation gap that started to appear in the FARC because of the old age of the leaders, the highest leaders, and the younger ages of, of, of the new recruits was just unsustainable. Hmm. So when they hear a, a government saying that, you know, the door to peace is not closed, or uh, we need to review drug policy in Colombia and in the world. And then, you know, there are contacts coming through saying, okay, well, let's have some secret discussions about peace. It's actually seems like pretty good timing. Um, the, the FARC, you know, in, in 2002, probably had, you know, anywhere between 18 and 20,000 full-time uniformed guerrilla fighters in the jungle. Um, we just saw that, you know, of the fighters um, who demobilized, but, uh, or, or who handed over the weapons and, and all that in the last week, they're about 6,900 huh. um, so of, of full-time fighters. So they've been decimated. They see someone who seems to be willing to talk peace. And at the same time, they realize if we don't do this now, this is all going to fall apart in the future. So, so looking forward, um, after this kind of the, the moment in which the final guns were turned in, I mean, you described earlier some of the challenges surrounding the reintegration of, of FARC fighters. Uh, but what of the peace process between the other rebel groups, like the ELN, uh, who did not, or, you know, were not part of that, that big deal? Is, is that the next huge challenge for, for Colombia now? Um, it's, it's definitely one of them. It, it might not be the biggest challenge, uh, but it's definitely one of them. The ELN is a group also founded in 1964, so this is a group you know, who's lasted 50-plus years, um, but is much smaller in terms of its numbers. Um, its civilian kind of wing is much bigger than its actual combatant wing. They, they, they have a different approach to the war, let's say. Um, and those 
and and the ELN has always been seen kind of as a little brother of the FARC, um, and the ELN hates that. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, those negotiations, I mean, they're struggling to move forward. Um, they're moving quite slow. The ELN's attitude for peace is not really clear. Um, they, the FARC is a very vertical organization, so basically what Timochenko and the secretary, the, the high-level leaders, what they decide is what goes for the whole organization. That's just how it is. Whereas the ELN is much more, it's, it's kind of a more internally democratic organization where regional commanders have much more power and autonomy than in the FARC. Um, the ability to make decisions lasts much longer. They try to do it by democratic consensus, um, if not, you know, if they, if, they, um, if they can. And so it's very difficult for them to maintain their unity, and it, that makes it much more difficult for them to actually make tough decisions, like if you're really going to negotiate or if you're going to end up handing over your weapons, honestly. Um, and, and so that's one of the challenges in the negotiations, and that's a huge one because, like I you know, just described, that process is, is struggling. Um, the government didn't give it the political importance it needed probably until a little bit too late. Um, and then just things like March 30th, 2016, the government, the ELN announced, OK, we have an agenda for peace talks. The agenda is extremely vague and, and, and doesn't really help. Um, but they announced they have an agenda, but they don't actually start the first rounds of talks until January of this year, um, basically because the ELN has um has been unwilling to stop kidnapping people. Um, Colombia, basically, kidnapping became an industry. At one point, you know, there were almost 4,000 victims of kidnapping a year um, in Colombia. And so it's a very touchy subject for, for Colombians. It's a very sensitive subject for a lot of people. Um, and, and the government said, okay, well, ELN, if you want to do this, stop kidnapping. The ELN said, you can't ask us. That's a unilateral demand, and that doesn't work in negotiations. So it's been a big problem. Hmm. But it really, the biggest problem for the, at least the peace agreement with the FARC right now, um, for the agreement as such, is the political context. Um, we have presidential negotiation, uh, presidential elections, sorry, coming up in uh, 2018, next year. And the strongest political party in the country, not in terms of representation within Congress and, and um, in Congress and within the government, it's the opposition party. Um, but the strongest singular party right now is against the agreement. Um, they've said that when they come to power, they will make changes to it. Mm -hmm. And and it's um, worth noting that, that the agreement lost in, in a popular referendum. Exactly. That's exactly, yeah, in October last year, there was a plebiscite, vote yes or no. And basically, you got one of the closest political results you can, a, a difference of, you know, between about one and a half percent in the votes, rejected the peace agreement. Um and there's a renegotiation process. The government and the FARC sat down, got the opposition proposals, and negotiated them into the mm -hmm. agreement. Not all of them, but a good chunk of them. Um, and I think the opposition hasn't been able to recognize their success within the agreement because they because of they focus on things. And I think the government strategy might have been wrong of getting as much as you can in there, but the most difficult issues the FARC and government didn't change. And those most difficult issues were the ones where Colombians are really united um, um, in their opposition. Things like FARC part, uh, political participation in Congress um, wasn't really conditioned, and I think the opposition would have been willing to accept it if it were conditioned. Um, and, and, and so basically what happens is after the there's a new peace agreement, which is signed in November of last year, 
none of no one from the opposition movements says, okay, we support this agreement. Mm. Um, we accept the changes. And so that maintains the political balance of power that was established once once the opposition wins this the, the popular referendum in October. So these elections could really have, have a big a big impact on on how the sort of peace process plays out twenty eighteen and beyond. Oh yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If if because everything is politics. I mean, Colombia has a is a country who's at least in, in Bogota, a lot of places has a huge focus on the legal side of things, on the law. Even though you know they have problems enforcing those laws, that's a whole different story. Um, so they've the government and FARC have tried to put these legal instruments in place to protect the peace agreement, but it's all based on politics. Um, in Colombia, whoever is president always finds a way to negotiate a majority of support in Congress. So anything that, as, as they see here, anything, the way you do things is the way you undo things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the biggest challenge is actually maintaining a peace agreement where one, it's you know the same agreement. Um, it won't be easy for the opposition to change it, but it's not impossible. It's, it's far from impossible. Or where there's the political will to actually implement this. Um, there's the peace agreement has creates a lot of new programs, agencies, um, and policies within the government. Uh, that Colombia, in a very difficult financial moment right now, because of the uh, basically because of oil prices, um, a new government could easily say, you know, just prioritize other issues and just kind of let these reforms and changes wither. We we use the word starve them, um, not give them the money or political importance they need, um, and that's that's a huge challenge. And and um, and it's it's a most likely reality. Looking at the political balance of power right now. Um, the most likely, um, at least most likely president would be coming from an, uh, a political party that is opposed to at least part of the peace agreement. Uh, um, we'll have so to, that is, yeah. that is difficult. So we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much. This was really helpful and, and obviously very timely. So thank you so much, Kyle. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. And, uh, if you ever want to keep talking about Colombia, you know where to find me. Oh yeah, I, I feel like I feel like you like talking. You can talk about this for days. It's what you do. Well, I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> exactly. you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much as well. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kyle. Uh, really interesting. It was it was good, useful, and, and pretty deep background. Uh, I think deeper than I think you would get in most other sources. So please do support the show. You know, this um, career panel that I'm doing is it's free. It's open to everyone, but it is very time consuming on my part as is the the podcast. And I, I really do need your support to make this a viable social enterprise. So please do become a premium subscriber. Use the links to make a contribution or a current contribution via Patreon. You'll earn lots of great rewards. I don't need to go over all of them now, uh, but you can go to the Patreon page to learn the rewards that you'll receive. But above all, you would be supporting the show and that would be so meaningful to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.